0: hi welcome back to state local politics this is mark johnson from m state moorhead this week's topic elections If you listening to this podcast, I'd strongly recommend for this one that you follow along with my notes online because I'm going to reference several maps that are posted on the notes. Obviously, I can't show you a map uh, while talking to you on a podcast, but I will describe some of them and hopefully you'll have them in front of you so you can follow along. This map from the October 18th, uh, 2004 edition of Newsweek is a great example. It makes a basic point that I want to start with. Now the details, which states, which counties, which, which methods, that's all changed quite a bit. In the last 17 years and some of those methods like mechanical lever-based counting machines that don't even exist anymore but there's a basic principle and the reason i show this to you is this basic principle has not changed in those 17 years all elections of the united states are run by state and local governments not the federal government in most states it's the counties the county governments actually administer them the polling places and the types of ballots that are used are going to vary from one county to another uh, notice that very few states on that map are all in a single color. There are parts of, you'll notice, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, New England, where the ballot method actually fluctuates even within counties, and that's because in those states, townships and city governments very well might be administering elections within their areas. In most states, the Secretary of State is in charge of administering elections. A couple of states have separate elections commissions or similarly named offices. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about the federal Secretary of State. At the national level, the Secretary of State deals with foreign affairs and diplomacy. In this context, we're talking about state level secretaries of state. These are usually elected by the voters, uh, by the voters of each state. Their job is to maintain state records. In North Dakota, for example, the Secretary of State is in charge of issuing business licenses and notary public stamps. In most states, the Secretary of State is a minor functionary who's responsible for a lot of paperwork shuffling things that you and I probably don't give a lot of thought about for the most part. However, in most states, there is one high-profile job that the the Secretary of State is given, and that's the oversight and management of elections. Rules about ballot access, timelines for filing paperwork, and the like are often determined at the state level, usually through some law passed by the legislature, or in some cases they're laid out in the state constitution. Regardless of where those rules come from, the Secretary of State oversees election administration at the state level. However, when I say administration, this usually takes the form of reminding the local officers, county auditors, city clerks, township clerks, and and so on, about the existence of those rules and regulations. The actual hiring and training of poll workers, as well as determining where polling places might should be, is actually done at the local level. So when you go to vote, the person at the desk is usually a temporary employee working on behalf of the county auditor or or the municipal elections director. Some states have laws which require, for fairness' sake, that half of those clerks and judges be appointed or nominated by the local Democratic Party officials and the other half by the Republican Party officials. Others leave that up to the local official, the county auditor, the city clerk, municipal clerk, etc. However, regardless of where and how they were selected, they all ultimately work for the local official. At the end of the voting period, so at the end of election night, each of those local sites then reports its results to the county or the city, again, in some places like Minnesota, maybe the city or the township actually runs the election. Regardless, they report their results to the to that local official, and then those local officials then report. They in turn send them on to the secretary of state. So when 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 Wolf Blitzer on CNN gets on uh, get, goes on television and says, "Oh, Minnesota's electoral votes go to Biden," or John Hoven has been elected to the U.S. Senate from North Dakota. He's reporting that based upon preliminary numbers received from the Secretary of State Office in each of those states. So when you go to vote, where do you go? Well, usually it's to a public building near your home. It might be a school, a park shelter, city hall, a fire hall, a National Guard armory, or something like that. Uh, many times they use privately owned buildings, but they might be publicly prominent. Churches are commonly used. Uh, restaurants, VFW halls, American Legion clubs, that sort of thing. Uh, There's a funny story of a Happy Joe's pizza restaurant in South Fargo, which up until not that long ago was a voting location. And those of you who live in the area around West Acres Mall in Fargo, uh, depending on where you live, you might actually vote at the atrium next to the food court at West Acres Mall. Uh, Again, remember the local election official, the county auditor, the city clerk, who's ever in charge, that's part of their job, securing those locations. A location for each precinct is usually necessary. Sometimes they'll put two precincts in the same location if a building is right at the border between the two, or there's no available location in one of the precincts. This is sometimes true in rural areas. So what's a precinct? A precinct is an area of land which constitutes the basic building block of elections. Precincts vary in size all around the United States, but they're usually no smaller than 500 people and usually no bigger than two or 3,000 people. In some rural parts of the country, we see smaller precincts, but that's only because the county commission doesn't want to make people drive long distances to go vote. In some urban areas, we see precincts with as many as 10,000 people, but those are pretty rare because the lines get really long and people have to wait too long. The local election official tries to balance cost with convenience. If you have a large number of small precincts, the lines are shorter and the driving distances are less, but you've got to pay for more machines, more workers, more building rents, right? But on the other hand, if you've got fewer precincts, but each one has a larger land area and more people in it, the costs are lower, but the convenience of voters getting to the polls diminished and then they might have to wait longer in line once they get there. So this does become a bit of a balancing act. Uh, but do remember, despite what folks in the national press like to claim, that the people deciding how many precincts to have and where they are are local officials. They're not governors, presidents, congressmen, congressmen, and usually not even the Secretary of State. This is, again, these are local decisions. So. You know, if the lines are long or you have to drive a long way to vote, call the county auditor or the city clerk. This was probably their decision. As I said before, uh, those precinct boundaries are determined by local election officials for the most part. But, here's a caveat, they do have to follow district lines as set by the states. In most cases, the state legislature draws those, uh, although courts and the federal justice department have from time to time stepped in and mandated certain lines. Uh, Regardless of how they're drawn, local officials have to keep legislative and congressional district lines in mind when they draw the precinct boundaries. I've shown you some examples on the notes, I've given you some examples from uh, the the Fargo metro area. Fargo-West Fargo is on one side of your screen, Moorhead is on the other. Uh, If you look at the Fargo-West Fargo example, each precinct is labeled with two numbers. I'll use the precinct I vote in, Far South Fargo, 46-03 and every precinct has two numbers. In in North Dakota, at least in, in Cass County, every precinct has two numbers. The first number is the state legislative district. I happen to live in legislative district 46. The second number is the precinct number. The county auditor, in drawing the precinct lines, used the existing legislative district boundaries, which are set by the state legislature, but then to make things more convenient for us, broke the districts up into two or three precincts each. You can't see all of Cass County on that map, but you might notice in the far southwest corner of the visible portion, there's a precinct labeled 22-08, down by Horace. District 28 is mostly the rural part of Cass County. It goes as far west as Tower City, about 40 miles west of Fargo. The county auditor broke up District 22 into 8 precincts, not because it has more people. You might recall from the very first unit, all legislative districts in North Dakota have about 14,000 people as I said before, the local officials, in this case the county, has to balance convenience and cost. If, if District 22 was only broken up into two or three precincts, there are voters that would have to drive 15 or 20 miles just to vote at their local polling place. Now, by contrast, District 44, Far North Fargo north, by contrast, that's the smallest district in the entire state. Uh, it's only about two and a half miles from the northern boundary to the southern boundary and less than a mile from east to west breaking that up into only two precincts isn't really that inconvenient for that voters. So those are some examples. Uh, There's some additional maps from Minnesota as well. Uh, I showed you Fergus Falls, uh, Wadena, Detroit Lakes, and St. Cloud. Uh, The Minnesota maps show the same principle. Now, Moorhead and Fergus Falls don't have to worry about splitting up legislative or congressional districts because both of those cities are wholly within single legislative districts. What they have to worry about is setting up their polling places to correspond to ward boundaries for city council. Most Minnesota cities elect city council members from small districts called wards. The St. Cloud map shows an example of a local government that has to deal with multiple sets of precinct and district lines when setting up polling places. The colored boxes show the city council ward boundaries. So those colored boxes on St. Cloud, Ward 1, Ward 2, Ward 3, etc., those are for electing their city council. However, notice that there's an orange line running approximately halfway through the middle of ward 3 in a north-south direction and then it cuts across the northeast corner of ward 5, I'm sorry, ward 4, and then it runs east-west through ward 1. That orange line is the boundary between two state house legislative districts, 14A and 14B. Remember, it was the state legislature not the city council that drew that line. So when the city auditor Who is in charge of elections in St. Cloud, has to draw precinct lines, they have to take into account both of those existing set of boundaries and then find precincts to fit. In the United States, we generally have two types of elections, general elections and primary elections. The general election is the one that you're probably most familiar with. Most of you are probably familiar with this one. It takes place on the Tuesday following the first Monday of November, so somewhere between November 2nd and November 8th, depending on the calendar that year. In most states, these take place every two years. Now, there's there's five exceptions, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, New Jersey, Virginia. I'll talk about those in a moment. As you probably know by now, we elect the president every four years, 2016, 2020, 2024, etc. At the same time, we also elect our members of Congress. The House members run every two years, so even if the president isn't on the ballot, we still have to vote for congressman every two years. Senate terms are every six years, so one-third of the senators run every two years. In 36 states, the governor and many other statewide officers are elected in the off-year general election. In other words, that 2014, 2018, 2022 election that we have to have anyway for members of Congress, right? There's 11 states where the governor is elected at the same time of the. Is the president. Now, I will note that New Hampshire and Vermont are counted in both the 36 states in the off year and the 11 states in the presidential year. It's a really simple reason for that. Their governors serve two-year terms rather than the four-year terms which the other 48 states use. But you also have state legislators, county commissioners, judges, all, a whole bunch of other officials that are serving two-year, four-year, or six-year terms. So there's always lots of other things to put on the ballot in either that presidential year or that off year. As I mentioned, there's five states that have annual elections because they elect their governors in odd-numbered years. Louisiana, Mississippi, and Kentucky elected their governors in 2015 and 2019 and will do so again in 2023. New Jersey and Virginia elected governors in 2013 and 2017, and they're going to do so again in 2021. Those five states also tend to hold state legislative elections in the odd-numbered years, which means the political campaign consultants in those states pretty much have virtual continuous employment, because there's always an election for something going on, right? Note that the only offices that have to be elected on those November dates in the even-numbered years are the federal officers, presidential electors, U.S. House members, and U.S. Senators. There's a federal law that says those have to be elected on those dates in November in those even-numbered years. However, the states have decided we have to pay for this, right? We have to hold elections anyway on those dates for federal offices hey, let's get get more bang for our buck, right, and hold local and state elections at the same time. In the general election, everyone gets to vote. Well, at least you have to to be registered, right, you have to be a legal voter. But they're pretty much open to anybody. But now, earlier in the year, most states hold primary elections. The early primaries usually take place in the spring, April, May, or June. A few states hold them as late as September in order to allow the political parties to select candidates, because political parties have to narrow down their candidates, right? Locally, Minnesota usually holds its primaries in September. North Dakotas are held earlier in June. Now don't confuse these with presidential primaries. We're going to talk about um, political parties in the next unit, and we're going to find out that's a whole different process. There are a few states where the primary elections for state offices are held on the same day as presidential primaries, but in most states, they're held separately. The presidential ones tend to be earlier. We'll talk about that a little bit about political parties next time. So who can vote in primary elections? Well, that's going to depend. Does the state use an open, closed, blanket, or jungle primary? There's four types. Closed primaries are the easiest one to understand. These are are simple. In the states that have closed primaries, when you go to register to vote, they ask you. To register, Would you like to register as a member of a party? Some people choose independent or none of the above, but that's okay. But when the primary election comes around, only the registered Republicans can vote in the Republican primary, and only the Democrats can vote in the Democratic primary. Now there often are other things on the ballot, for example city councilmen or school board members earlier during that primary time. Those are usually nonpartisan, so a voter who is not registered as a member of a party, they can still vote for the nonpartisan offices. But they can't be given the ballot for Republican primary or Democratic primary. All right, So that's closed. Closed is pretty easy. Open primaries, which is what we happen to use here locally in North Dakota, Minnesota, are where you walk in to vote and you, you either choose the Democratic ballot or the Republican ballot or the Green ballot or so on. It doesn't matter which party you're registered in because many of those states don't even identify. You're not even asked to register as a party member. Uh, when you register to vote in the first place. The only stipulation is that you must vote for candidates in only one party. This discourages Republicans from crossing over into the Democratic primary and vice versa, since since if you do so, you can't vote in your own party's primary at all. Now, in some open primary states, the the voters asked, Republican or Democrat, and they must say which ballot they want. Some political activists say, well, that's a closed primary because you have to say out loud which one you want. Um, Those of us who study this do not generally consider that a form of closed primary because it's open to any voter. Any voter can decide up to the moment they walk in the door, which one do I want? Which, Which party primary do I want to vote in? Some states like North Dakota use a single ballot. One column is for the Democrats. The other column is for the Republicans. The backside is for the nonpartisan offices. And oftentimes there's a big black line down the middle and the instructions say, hey, don't cross the line. In those cases, obviously, the voter doesn't have to tell anybody what ballot they want, right? They just pick one column in which to vote in. Now, if they cross over, the machines are programmed to catch this. The machine says, hey, you screwed up. They tore up the ballot. They tear up your ballot. They give you a new ballot and let you start all over again. As I mentioned, Minnesota and North Dakota use open primary systems. There are some places, South Dakota is an example of this, which have some sort of combination. South South Dakota has voters registered by party. And then they used a closed primary system by general rule. However, there is a law in South Dakota that allows the political parties themselves to open up their primaries to independent voters. In states like this, it's not unusual for one party to open its primary to independents, while the others might choose to keep it closed to registered parties only. I provide a link to a Ballotpedia article uh, about the types of primary elections. You can read more about South Dakota and similar situations there. Uh, The blanket primary, which no longer really exists, but I always talk about it because people say, hey, we should do this. and Well, we're going to find out in a moment. This is not possible. The blanket primary was a creation of the state of Washington. It it, it was also used from time to time in California, Alaska, Oregon. Uh, Eventually, the major political parties successfully sued California and Washington and got this declared unconstitutional about 20 years ago in the early 2000s. In the blanket primary system, a voter picked up a ballot which has all the candidates for all offices regardless of party. If the voter wanted to vote in the Democratic primary for governor and then switch to the Republican primary for congressman, then back to the Democratic primary for state senator, etc., that was all perfectly fine and legal. Well, okay, what do political party activists think about this? They don't like this. It allows anyone, even those in the other party, to try to select my party's nominees. So both California and Washington tried modifications of this at various times in the late 90s, early 2000s, especially in local elections. The federal courts kept saying, hey, this is unconstitutional because you're allowing, you're basically allowing voters to interfere with what are basically clubs, basically private organizations. Okay. So instead... In Washington, the voters approved a constitutional amendment in 2004, which adopted something called a top two system. It's real similar to what Louisiana has been using for years, and I'll talk about the jungle primary in a moment. California also adopted this in 2010, uh, which has now switched that state's primary to the top two system. And so the blanket system, where you st- still have separate Democratic primaries or Republican primaries, but voters can go back and forth, that pretty much seems to be dead. Instead we have the jungle system, sometimes called the Cajun system. It's called that because it was first used in Louisiana, at least in this country. Um, it's also based upon the system used in France. Louisiana was a French colony, so this makes some, some sense. In this type of system, every candidate for office, regardless of party, goes on one ballot. So you might have seven Democrats, four Republicans, Libertarian, a Green, a Constitutionalist, various other independents, no-party candidates, minor parties, let's say for governor. They're all on one ballot. For the state senate race there might be two democrats four republicans two or three minor party candidates and so on you walk in and cast your vote you could vote for a democrat in the governor's race then a republican for state senator green party candidate for state representative and so on if one candidate gets 50 plus percent plus one a simple majority the primary that candidate's the winner the race is over if no candidate gets a simple majority then the top two candidates regardless of party run against each other in a runoff, usually at the same time as the general election. Uh, Now that the blanket primary has been declared unconstitutional, Washington and California have now switched to this system. They call it the top two. They don't call it the jungle primary, but it's basically the same thing. The only major difference between the Washington, California top two and the Louisiana jungle system is that in Louisiana, if someone gets 50% plus one in round one, election's over, candidate is not like the winner, there's no general election. In Washington, California, the top two finishers end up in a runoff in the general election regardless of what happened in the primary. So that's the only real major difference. Now, in this system, it's possible. Could the top two finishers both be Democrats? Both be Republicans? Can we get a Republican versus a Green in the runoff, a Democrat versus a Libertarian? Yeah, we could. And this sort of thing does happen sometimes in both Louisiana and California, particularly. You've probably noticed that we've been talking exclusively about state-level elections here, although most of what we said also applies to U.S. Congress as well as the state legislatures. The presidency is a little different. I'm not gonna say much about it in this class because it's a class in state and local politics. I will touch on it a little bit in the next unit on political parties. What we've said nothing about up to now are elections for local offices, things like mayor, city council, county commission, school board, township, etc. As we're gonna find out later in the course, when we have our units on local government, local governments are largely created by the states. And with the exception of what are called Home Rule Cities, they're mostly subject to whatever rules and regulations the states choose to dictate to them. So in many states, election dates for local officials are determined by the state. State law, rule passed by the Secretary of State, etc. In North Dakota, for example, city and school board elections take place on the same day as the state primary in June, but townships elections are in March. This is actually stated in state law. North Dakota does allow home rule cities, we'll find out later what those are, to pick different dates. In Minnesota, cities and school boards use the same primary or general election dates as the statewide offices, but individual cities and school boards can choose to hold them on the, court state, on the corresponding dates in odd numbered years. Again, this is in state law. Minnesota also has specifically set aside some very specific days every year for special elections to fill vacancies, for example, or for local ballot measures. Home rule cities, like in every other city, uh, can choose which year to hold their elections, odd or even, but the September and November dates are set in stone statewide. One of your case studies in this unit asks you to find out if there are similar rules for your state. In the samples I've provided, notice that I've provided a source where to get the information, as well as the overview of how my sample states have dealt with this issue. Notice that counties, cities, school districts, and townships are sometimes given different rules. Some of you will find your states are very rigid about this issues about this issue, sorry, others provide quite a bit of latitude, and a handful require nothing. Although remember, since elections, even for city even for state and federal office, are largely run and paid for by local governments, it's in their interest. Combine elections for multiple offices on the same day. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson from M-State Moorhead. This is State and Local Politics. Have a great day.